0: Wonderful to see all of you. I hope you are all doing well as we get ready to go downhill and pick up speed into the holidays, right? It always gets kind of crazy around Thanksgiving week and the end of the year just goes so fast. Uh-oh, was that the Sacred Communion top? Okay. <laughs> all right, good. It's just a coffee cup. Okay, good. I'm like, <gasps> blasphemer. Okay. So, anyway, last week I got to go be a part of a national pastors' conference in Marietta. We gathered with about 40, 50 pastors from all over the United States and Canada, um, just to get together and seek the Lord and kind of share what God is doing in our lives, in the lives of our churches, but also in our lives personally. And it was just an amazing, amazing time. Um, Sometimes pastors' conferences are not encouraging. They can be discouraging, uh, believe it or not. It kind of depends on who's there, what the vibe is, what the attitude is. And I was just really moved by the humility and the love and the openness to whatever the Lord wants to do in the lives of these men. So I just really left extremely encouraged. And you know humility, it, it is a very attractive thing when you actually see it. Humility is hard when you're surrounded by prideful people. Um, because the sin nature wants to rise to that occasion. You're like, I'm not humbling myself. You're not humbling yourself. I'm not going to do it. But when you see humility in action, I mean, it is. It's this beautiful, just beautiful presence. And so I just really left um, humbled myself um, and just thanking God for the work that he's doing there. And in particular, I, I just left with a renewed sense of gratitude for this church. I heard a lot of stories about you know, what God's doing in, in different pastors' lives in their churches, whether here in California or New York or Montreal, Canada, Quebec, and all, all these places. And, and there's great things. It's legit. It doesn't have to be a comparison thing. I can go, wow, you're doing. the Lord is doing amazing things there. But I'm, I'm thankful for my church. I'm thankful for the people that make it what it is. And so I just want to say thank you for being who you are the the attitude that you come up with the the love that you bring to the church the genuine hospitality that you show to one another it's 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 something that uh, every time somebody comes here and kind of they tell me what what their experience was that's one of the main things people have told me over the years is like that is Maybe the most loving church I've ever been to in my life. And that's a good testimony. And that's a testimony to you. So I just want to say thank you for that. And just continue following Jesus. That's what this whole thing is about. Just continue following Jesus. Don't stop. What's up? Oh, oh no, no. It's I thought you were pointing to the screen. You're like, Mike, there's a picture of your dog on the screen. What are we doing? Uh, no, well, I appreciate that. But again... All praise, honor, and glory to our Savior, now and forever. Amen. So, going into the holidays, we're going to be doing a series of topical messages. I normally do verse-by-verse teaching uh, through books, but uh, for this week, in honor of Thanksgiving, we're going to have a special Thanksgiving message, and then following that, we'll get right into our Christmas messages, which is... Just amazing that we're already there. And of course, our Christmas party, we do it the first week of December, which I think is great because it can get really hectic uh, at the end of the month. And, you know, sometimes people are, you know, in a bad mood because it's near Christ's birth, you know, and finding parking and stuff. Of course, Amazon has probably helped that a little bit. You don't have to go, you know, fight for a parking spot or something. But um, I think it's important to take time to focus on this theme of Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is, of course, really about this idea of gratitude. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is cultivating an attitude of gratitude. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude. And I was looking at various texts, um, and so many texts on Thanksgiving are found in the Psalms, and there's many wonderful Psalms I could have chose. Uh, but I came across another text that I thought would be kind of fun because it, it isn't didactic. It's not a teaching passage. It's a story. And so I want to talk about culting, cultivating an attitude of gratitude through an excerpt of the story of Queen Esther. So we're going to teach from Esther today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in two passages because we're going to make a little narrative connection. I will have the passage up on the screen behind me so you can follow along. In fact, it may be easier for you to do that. But let me just give you the two passages as a heads up. So we're going to look at Esther 2, 19 through 23. Esther 2, 19 through 23. And we will follow that immediately by Esther 6, 1 through 11. Esther 6, 1 through 11, and you'll see why. There's a direct connection. Now, if you're ready, please follow along with me as we read God's word. This is the word of the Lord. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now, Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthon, Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now fast forward five years. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor Let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square. And proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed him before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and I just pray that you would teach us the importance of thankfulness. That you would show us that the commands throughout scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments, to give all glory, honor, and praise to you is not meant as a burdensome commandment for us, but rather it is a means of joy and happiness. It's in cultivating an attitude of gratitude to you and to others that we find ultimate satisfaction. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning as we look at this great story and as we attempt to glean from it practical tools that we can use, To cultivate an attitude of gratitude and to practically change our lives and the lives of others. We just pray your spirit would speak to our hearts. That our minds would be prepared to hear what you have to say. And that we would be able to see Jesus and his work on the cross as the supreme act in all of history for which we can be eternally grateful. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know many of you are familiar with this story. But I also can't take that for granted. I just don't think that's fair um, to take Bible stories for granted and studies show in modern America, less and less people are biblically literate. So I want to try to catch you up. Again, I encourage you, if you don't know the story of Esther, read the book of Esther, right? And and what we say here today will make more sense. Um, But let me just kind of fill this in for you. So God made the world and everything in it. He didn't make it out of violence. Most of the ancient stories of the world, the gods, make the world out of violence. And so when you see violence, people look at it, that's just part of the world. That's what happens. Violence, people die, people groups fight other people groups, and that's just life. And they have stories that reaffirm that. But the Christian story, the Jewish story, is no such thing. In the Christian account of creation, there's no competition among the gods. There's only one true God, and he is not a part of creation. He is transcendent, and when he makes the world and everything in it, he does so out of love, not out of war, not out of violence, not out of necessity, but out of his free choice, the desire to love, and he creates a world that's perfect. One of the beautiful nuances of the Hebrew language in Genesis is the picture of and the world was without form and void right so there was nothing then god makes it but when he first makes it he didn't make it complete it's it's sort of he made the raw material but shaping needs to be done and then it says the spirit of god hovered over the waters and Really what that word means is fluttered, and it's the picture of a mother eagle fluttering over the nest as she prepares it for her young. So it's the idea of the spirit of God is fluttering over the waters of the earth just as a mother is preparing the room, the baby's room, the crib, everything in it, just as a mother eagle is hovering over the nest, warming it and preparing it. That's what God was doing for the world. And then into this perfect world that we long for and we're upset every time something doesn't go right and we wonder why. Well, there's this distant memory all through the beginning of our human ancestors that you're right. The world isn't supposed to be this way. It actually was perfect. That's why you're upset even though you don't understand that. And God put human beings, Adam and Eve, the first human pair into the world in this perfect world and he turned it over to them. And he said, rule in my place. Adam and Eve took that that authority. They took that ability to choose, and they chose evil. Good wasn't good enough. Their place, as long as they were not equal with God, it wasn't good enough. And so when they're grasping for the fruit, it's not a trivial thing. The fruit is simply the occasion for the true act, which was an act of unthankfulness. They were not thankful for a perfect world, and it kind of reminds you, um, you know, in my own life as an adult, but as a parent, uh, you know, I want to make my kids happy, right? I want to do this, but it's it's an elusive thing, isn't it, <laughs> to make a kid happy? I mean, it's not easy to do it for like five seconds. Buy a little five-year-old a new toy, and they're happy, right? How long does that last? Yeah, about five seconds. Right. If you got a really good kid, it's 10, <laughs> 10 seconds. And, it, and then it's always something else. But there's again, if you think about it, if happiness is always about getting something else, you'll never stay happy. And as a matter of fact, you may grow less happy because you kind of grow numb to that temporary happiness. And so you, you search for something more. So unthankfulness is actually not a little thing. It's at the root of everything. It's at the root of every problem. If you're unthankful, there is no amount of money in the world that will ever make you happy. If you are unthankful, there is no man or woman in the world you'll ever meet or love or marry or date or whatever with that will ever make you happy. Because the problem is deeper than them. Or that. The problem is spiritual. You're unthankful. There's, um, I don't know if you know this, it's absolutely fascinating, there's scientific study done on gratitude. Um, Actually one of the world's leading experts on the science of gratitude is a Christian at UC Davis. His name is Robert Emmons and he's actually studied the science of gratitude and he's got a great little book called Thanks. And there's a section in the middle of that book entitled, The Poverty of Affluence, The Poverty of Affluence. And one of the the things he wanted to study is, if happiness is found in things, then why is it the United States of America's happiness index is actually lower than many third world countries? That's kind of weird. You'd think if happiness is found in having cars and houses and money and and nice vacations and all that kind of stuff, you would think we would be among the happiest people in the world. But if you actually do the research, you find out we are not. Not even close, actually. And he talked about the poverty of affluence because deep down the secret is not is not getting things you don't have, but learning to want and appreciate what you already have. The secret of happiness is gratitude. You know, and you think about it, there's no way you can avoid it. You're indebted to somebody. If you come into this world, you owe your mother and father, regardless of who they are, Or the circumstances of your birth. You owe them a debt of gratitude. They brought you into the world. Then somebody raised you. Am I right? You didn't feed yourself at one year old. You didn't go to work. You didn't pay the bills. You didn't try to find a job when the economy was bad and go through all that. You didn't do that. Someone else did that for you. Someone raised you. Maybe it wasn't a biological parent. Maybe it was a stepparent. Maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it was an adoptive parent. Someone else raised you. You owe them a debt of gratitude. Let's say you even think, no, I'm a self-made man or woman. And I worked really hard, and I went to college, and I got a, a degree, and then I made a bunch of money, and that was me. Would that be true of you if you were born in another country in another time? Didn't other people's sacrifices even here in this country make it possible for you to be the self-made man or woman? Think about it for a moment. If you're an American, whether you're a citizen or not, if you're an American, you live here. This is your home. When we celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, a lot of times we tell the story of, of, of the pilgrims. And of course, that's a part of the Thanksgiving story, but it became a national holiday when Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War in the 1800s, declared it be a national holiday. And he did it smack in the middle of the Civil War, the bloodiest war in American history. And so literally, you had Americans killing Americans in mass numbers. Stories of literally brothers killing brothers because they were on the wrong side of the war. And these people fighting and dying has made it possible for this country to be what it is. And of course, I think of World War I and World War II. They call it the greatest generation. My grandfather fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater. And I grew up hearing stories of what the young boys did. 18 years old 19 years old young boys like my grandfather who lied i know not saying you should lie but he lied to get into the military when he was 17 to go fight for his country so all these people did all these things so that we could be here today and then there comes a season of life when you know you can kind of believe i don't know anyone you know paid off my debt here and mom and dad will they're kind of jerks anyway so i don't really owe them or I'm doing stuff for them, so it doesn't matter. And then you come to the end of your life and suddenly you find people are having to take care of you once again. It was one of the weirdest things in the world when my dad, at a younger age, because of his, his illness and cancer, ended up dying at 57. But it just in the couple years prior, it was so weird for me as a, as a young boy, young man, taking care of the father who took care of me. The man who, when I got my first like professional job working in a bank and I didn't know how to tie a tie, and my dad was teaching me how to tie a Windsor, I think, was it a double Windsor? I don't even know what these things are anymore, but you know, he's teaching me to tie a tie. And at the end of his life, he was so sick and his memory was going, my mom actually has a picture and she sent it to me not that long ago. And it's a picture of my daddy with all his, his hair and his beard gone completely white. In his mid-50s, his face shrunk and his skin yellow from being jaundiced. And there I am, showing my dad how to tie his tie. And it was, it was just the weirdest thing in the world. So it's you come into the world indebted to the kindness and gifts and work of others. Maybe you come to some place in life where you start to believe the illusion that you don't owe anyone a debt of gratitude. But then the end of your life comes. And once again, you're having to be taken care of like a little boy or a little girl all over again. If life is all about indebtedness, then on the flip side of that, it's all about gratitude. It's all about gratitude. And this story of Esther is a story that was meant to birth gratitude in the Jewish community. That's the purpose. The purpose of Esther is to explain a holiday when young Jewish boys and girls would celebrate the Feast of Purim, they would be told this story of Esther and they would be told we owe a debt of gratitude to Esther and Mordecai and those who have gone before us because our people were almost completely wiped out a genocide had been declared again if you don't know the story of Esther this figure Mordecai so you got you got two figures you got Mordecai and Haman Haman is the evil figure The Agagite, who hates Mordecai so much, he talks the king into signing an edict that says all the Jews will be exterminated. He actually gets the king of Persia, so Ahasuerus is also Xerxes I. He gets divine permission to commit genocide and kill all of the Jews. And God raises up Esther. And interestingly, the name of God is not mentioned once in the entire book of Esther. But the hand of God is everywhere. And it takes eyes of faith to see God's hand, even when his name is not clear. And so God uses Esther and Mordecai to turn the tables and to save God's people. So that's the bigger story. But I I picked a smaller story. And I thought this was quite interesting. So Esther is a very, very complicated story with many layers and subplots. It it really would be an amazing play, and I don't know that anyone's done it yet. If there's any screenwriters out there, somebody should do this. I mean, it really is amazing. I mean, this is a little narrative plot right here. So Esther, whom Mordecai is raised because she was an orphan, her parents died. She was a beautiful, beautiful girl. Apparently she was just stunning. And she, gets, she becomes queen of Persia. That, how crazy is that? She becomes queen of Persia. And because Mordecai raised her, there's this connection between the queen of Persia and the Jewish people. Well, one day Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill King Ahasuerus, Xerxes. And he tells Esther. And Esther goes to the king and it says she told him in Mordecai's name, which means she gave Mordecai the credit. So the king's life was saved through Mordecai. And yet we find out nothing had been done. Nothing. No parade. No money. Not even a thank you email card. Right? Nothing. For five years, this this guy's life was saved. That's not like a little thing, right? Right? His life was saved. King Xerxes' life was saved. 5 years he didn't give thanks. One night he simply can't sleep. And he does what we all do when we can't sleep. You read court records. Not really. <laughs> By the way, it's kind of funny interpreters we don't really know was he sensing like guilt? Right. There was this unconscious guilt of having never repaid this debt of gratitude. And that's why he wanted the records. On the other hand, what better way to make you go to sleep if you can't sleep? So it's kind of like, well, well, which one was it? Was it this, you know, guilt or was it just like, man, that's really boring. That'll make me go right to sleep. We don't know. But all of a sudden, after five years, he has these records read. The story of Mordecai comes before him again, even though he knew it, did nothing about it. And now we see gratitude taking place. And we see God turning the tables the very day Haman is making, and by the way, it's not a gallows, it was a a giant pole, the Persians impaled people. So they would slide them down, shove the poles up through various parts of their bodies, and then they would just be sliding down these poles and hanging there, reminding everyone you don't mess with the Persian Empire. Okay, so he erects a 50 foot pole to impale Mordecai. And that very same day, in God's providence, Haman comes before the king. And he thinks he's going to be honored, so he gives, yeah, make him, you know, put him in the royal robes, parade him around, and instead, the tables are turned, and the one that's going to get honored is not Haman, it's Mordecai, the man he came in to ask if he could kill, and instead, he's the one, Haman, the bad guy, chosen to parade Mordecai around town, thus does the king do for the man who delights to honor, like, it's, it's amazing how God turns the tables. And so from this story, I want to talk about four steps we can take to cultivate gratitude. Number one, make it a regular practice to reflect on the past with the intention of scanning for blessings forgotten or missed. Make it a regular practice to reflect on the past with the intention of scanning for blessings, forgotten, or missed. Let me say a couple of things we do wrong here. So there's two kinds of groups. There's A, the group that doesn't think about the past at all. You don't reflect on it, you forget it, act like it never happened. That's actually not good. There's another group. You reflect on the past and you scan for all the bad, horrible, cruddy stuff that's happened to you, and you just focus on that all the time. Neither of those are good for you. What I'm asking you to do is, I'm saying if you don't reflect on the past, you should. But when you do, you're not scanning looking for all the bad stuff that ever happened. You're scanning for gratitude. You're looking for anything that God has done for you. And maybe some of you don't believe in God. Well, you can still start here. You're not ruled out from this. Look for what people have done for you. Look for what, here's the key to gratitude. The key to the emotion of gratitude is it has to come from inside you out towards someone else. It's an other-centered emotion. You can be angry at yourself. You can be proud of yourself. You can't be grateful to yourself. It's an emotion that only can be recognized and fulfilled when it acknowledges others. It's an other-centered emotion. So we intentionally look back for the purpose of scanning the past for anything we've forgotten, like this story. A good thing was done for the king five years ago. Five years, his life was saved. Don't think it's not possible for something great to have been done for you that you have not realized. Now, you can look at the king and say, well, he was a jerk. You know, he's just this mean guy. He's like, yeah, I'm the king. I deserve to be rescued. Okay, maybe. Maybe he was like that. Here's another thing. How would you feel if you just found out someone was trying to kill you, like literally? Literally. You'd be kind of freaked out, and then, you know, it's like you're going to take care of that. And, of course, in that day, instead of going to the court and getting a restraining order and doing all that stuff, you kill them, <laughs> right? And, you, and you're always having an eye on your enemies. He had a vast empire over the known world at that time. So, I mean, he's, the guy is thinking about a million things, and his life's on the line. And there's a lot of people that want to kill him. He just doesn't know who they are, but he found out two of them. So he's so busy, How many of you are busy? He's so busy, wrapped up in the past, he doesn't have time to be grateful. So you can miss good things that have happened. Here's another thing, another reason you must reflect on the past. Some things that you can be grateful for right now were actually bad at the time they were bad. They weren't good. In that moment, unless you believe in a God who's sovereign over bad, you don't have anything to be thankful for. But how many of you here today can say, I've looked back at some of the bad things in my life that have happened over the years. And at least in some of those, I can tell you, thank God that that happened to me, because I wouldn't be who I am, be where I am, and be with who I'm with, if it weren't for those bad things. Can anybody say that this morning? Can anyone say amen? As a part of this, and again, I I don't want to preach that which I don't practice, right? So as a part of this, and I'm not going to share what they are, maybe I will sometime, but I actually wrote some of these things down for me personally things that were horrible, awful, terrible. There wasn't anything good in it at the time. Not even if I was the biggest optimist in the world could I have found anything good in that. And here, these years later, this last week, preparing for the message I'm sharing with you, I literally was able to write out how God has taken the bad and worked it for good that if God asked me, probably even now, I'd still say, don't let that happen. That, That was really painful. But God didn't ask me. I'm here, and I can now look back with an attitude of gratitude. And I wouldn't know that. This isn't simply, I forgot. It's something that unless you're intentional, you make it a practice to reflect. I wouldn't even know I wouldn't be conscious of. It wouldn't affect my life that a bad thing that was bad at the time, and there's no way of sugarcoating it, but has now been worked for good. Have you ever thought of the English word recognize before? What's the the prefix? Re-recognize. It doesn't mean you processed it right the first time. By definition, you have to do it again. You have to recognize the past through a lens of gratitude. So for those of you that don't recognize, you do not look back, I want to encourage you to start doing that. I want to encourage all of you to start using a gratitude journal a journal where you make a schedule for yourself. It can be daily. It can be weekly. I'd say at least monthly. So daily, weekly, or monthly. Make a journal where you practice recognizing the past, searching for things to be thankful for. Bad things that happened that God has turned for good. So that's the first thing. Secondly, willingly acknowledge out loud to yourself and others that God has been the source of the blessings you have received. So if I can do a little biblical theology, as I told you, God's name's not even mentioned in Esther. And some people go, well, should it even be in the Bible then? God's name's not even in the book of Esther? Why is it there? And I think one of the reasons it's there is because that is true to life experience sometimes. Even to a man or woman of genuine faith, we can go through seasons of life where I I do not see God's hand. I do not hear his voice. I do not see his name written on anything. That is actually literally true of a book of the Bible. God's name is not mentioned once. And yet, of course, as the reader, as Esther, as Mordecai, could recognize and look back, you see the saving hand of Yahweh everywhere. James 1.17 in the New Testament says that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father above, the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. That God is the true and faithful one the yes and the amen, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that every good gift, everyone, including every gift a non-Christian has. Let's say you're here this morning, you don't believe in God. Let's say you believe in God, but you don't believe in the Christian God. Let's say you have many gods or no gods or people or God or whatever. Still, the Bible says that the God who made heaven and earth Yahweh, the Lord, the I am, the one who spoke the world into existence out of nothing, even though you don't believe in him, he has still given you good gifts the whole of your life. He is the one ultimately responsible for your existence this morning. And the ability to even hear these words that I'm speaking is a gift from his good hand. So although the name of God is not mentioned once in the entire book of Esther, God's hand is everywhere present through what we call providence. It's an important word to understand, the concept even more important, but it's good to refer to it by a term such as providence. So what is it? Providence is God's nonverbal activity in the world of human affairs. And the book of Esther is all about God's providential care. Even when he's not speaking, he's working. We need to understand this about God. Here's a few examples from the book of Esther. So King Xerxes just so happens to have a sleepless night. Why didn't he walk it off? Why didn't he ask for some wine? Why didn't he just toss and turn? He just so happens to ask for court records of all things, to be brought to him in the middle of the night. And by this time, he had been reigning for 12 years. And so of the 12 years worth of records already written down during his reign at this point, he just so happens in one night to hear the story of Mordecai saving his life five years earlier, the night before Mordecai is going to be killed by Haman. And it just so happens that he discovers this day that Haman planned to have him impaled. While one could always pass this off as luck or coincidence. And isn't that so often what we do in life? They could have done that. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, if you do the math. Like 12 years of court records, one sleepless night. The thing you're looking for was roughly in the middle of the records, right? So you've been reigning 12 years worth the records. What Mordecai did was five years. I mean, mathematically, I mean, there's one in a million chance, you know, it, it could have happened. And then, oh, the fact that it happened on the day when Haman was going to go in and ask that he be impaled. Oh, oh, really? You know, all of that. Again, I think too often in life we do this with God's providential care. Because we don't hear a word, a special word, and I know we want that, and I do too, but many, many times in life, God acts the way he does in Esther. He doesn't say anything verbally. He simply acts through what is. He acts through the world of human affairs. These people that you meet or you don't meet, these jobs that work out or they don't work out, this health situation or that one, this relationship coming to fruition and this one falling apart, that God is able to work through all of the messiness of human affairs so that even when it looks like everything is going wrong, which happened here, I'd say genocide looks like everything's going wrong, don't you? when it looks like everything's going wrong, God is still sovereign over the entire process so that he is able to bring life out of that death. And that's the Christian message. Out of Jesus dying for you, the world's killing of him, the only righteous one, the only sinless one, it's through his death that you are able to have life. And so at the very heart of Christianity is this attitude of gratitude. I believe and worship one who died for me. If I'm living life and I'm not thankful right now, the problem is not I need more of anything. The problem is in me. I am not thankful. I don't appreciate what Jesus did for me. I don't appreciate what a relationship with God costs. I don't appreciate that I'm really nothing compared to God or or even the mess of humanity throughout history. I mean, who am I that God should be mindful of me, to be honest with you? Who am I? Sometimes, I mean, it feels like the world revolves around me. You're thinking about your life, your bills, right? Do you think about everybody else's bills? Do you think about everybody else's kids? Right? No, the world revolves around you, and I understand that. That's just kind of how it is. One of the things I love about flying in a plane, no matter how many times I do it, is at 30,000 feet, You know, my mortality is very clear to me, even though statistically you're safer in a car, but it sure doesn't feel that way, right? 30,000 feet in a flying tin can. And then you're looking down as, as, as you're flying up, as you're ascending, and you notice the cars get smaller and smaller, and they look like Legos. We look like we're nothing. We feel so big to ourselves, but to God, we're like these tiny little Legos. And, and there's a sea of them. Why should God care about any of us? Look how tiny you are. Why should God care about your life and your problems? Why should He? But I'll tell you something the Bible says He does. The Bible says he knows everything about every one of you, even though you're riding around in your little Lego car, thinking the world's so big, that you're, you're so big, but really you're so small. And God knows every thought that you think. He knows the number of hairs on your head or not on your head. He knows every single one. And he cares about you. And he loves you. If that's not cause for gratitude, I I don't know what is. I don't know what could change in your life to ever make you thankful if you can't be thankful right now with that knowledge. So when you make a regular practice of reflecting on the past, scanning for blessings, forgotten or missed, then you need to willingly acknowledge, write it down, speak it. Be a person who speaks gratitude. Be a thankful person. For many of you, this will reveal that you complain a lot. Isn't that true? Some of us, when you don't even know that you do this, but when you actually start thinking, you make it a thing. I'm going to thank, be thankful. I'm I'm not only going to thank people, I'm just going to talk about things I'm thankful for. Suddenly, when, when you find how hard it is to do that and how weird and awkward it seems, it's probably because you're very unthankful and you probably complain a lot. And people will think they're looking at a whole new you when they see you doing this. So actually practice vocalizing. It's important that you do that. Merely recognizing it is not enough. We have to actually willingly, not be forced, it has to be an act of the will, willingly acknowledge the blessings we've received. Number three, continue to reflect and thank the Lord until your heart is warmed and springs forth in genuine appreciation and praise. Now, what I've just done with one, two, and three is I've encapsulated what many have said, make up the human person. The intellect, the will, and emotion. Some people are intellectual, they're not emotional. Some people are emotional, but not intellectual. But To really respond and experience transformation as a person, you need all three of these. You have to be intellectual. You have to think. You've got to use your mind. But you've got to willingly do something. Somebody can't make you do the right thing. That is not virtuous for you. It may be practical, but it's not virtuous. It doesn't change you if someone forces you to do what's right. You have to willingly do it. And then third. Again, some people more at home with this than others. You need to emotionally respond. It's no mistake that singing songs is a part of worship. We don't just do music here for people who like music. We do it here because it's a part of being fully human. You must praise and you are meant to experience God not only intellectually which we do mainly through the word, the preaching of the word. supposed to address your mind. That's why there can't be mindless preaching that doesn't challenge your brain. But it must not only be intellectual, we must engage with our emotions. And so I would encourage you as you're doing this practice of gratitude, not only be intentional about looking into the past, willingly by your own choice, speak this gratitude to others and continue doing it until you can honestly start singing songs and praising God. Because if you, I mean, imagine, let's think of a human relationship. Can you love someone with no emotion? Like, would you even say you love that person if, you know, say you're dating or something like that. And they're like, do you love them? And like, oh, yeah, I love them. I just feel absolutely nothing for them. Really? Tell me how that works. Oh, well, you know, intellectually, I looked at their, you know, resume online on the dating site, and they're like, they come from good stock, and they got a good education, and, you know, oh, they'd be a good match, but I feel nothing. Like, that's not good, right? I'm not saying emotion's everything. You're like, oh, I feel so emotional about this person. Oh, they've been in jail 10 times. Oh, and they're dealing drugs out of the back of their car. Oh, maybe you shouldn't be so emotional about this person. So, so the intellect has to be involved. But emotion is a part of real relationship. And so we need to sing songs. For those of you that, again, the musical portion of a service is, is like the thing you listen to. It's entertainment or, or it's optional. No, it's not. It's actually for you. It's for all of you. And many times when we read the passages in the Bible that say you must worship God and God wants all the glory and the honor and the praise. And sometimes people are tempted to think, well, gosh, God, is he like super insecure? He keeps asking for all this praise. I mean, if God was secure, would he need it? The praising God commandments are not for him. They're for you. You're made in His image. Your value and worth comes from Him. And you won't know your worth and you won't know your value until you start worshiping the God in whose image you were made. And you can go the rest of your life insecure and trying to find value in a boyfriend, in a girlfriend, in a husband, and a wife, in a job, in an education, and you never will be secure. And whatever you find it in and you trick yourself into thinking you're secure, whoosh, can be taken from you in the blink of an eye. And it'll be revealed on that day how foolish it was to build your life on sandy land when my Sunday school teacher told me very plain and clear, don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Oh, it might be kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice. Oh, don't build it too near the shore. Build your house on the rock. On the solid ground. And though the storms of life may come and go, the peace of God you will know. We want to build our lives on God, and part of that is responding to him emotionally through praise. We come to transformation when we worship. God knows what's best for us. And so I want to encourage you when we gather together on Sundays and in your own personal life, whether you're musically inclined or not, make singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs a part of your faith. You can actually experience change in your life. And lastly, remember to look to the cross every day and in every season. For it is forever there where Jesus delivered from the power of sin and death. Jesus is the great theme of the entire Bible. If you don't know the Bible, it seems like a weird book. Let me give you the key. Let me give you the glasses that you put on. It's Jesus. Jesus said of the Old Testament, the volume of the book, it is written of me. You search the scriptures for you think in doing so you have life, but it's them that testify of me. The Bible is all about Jesus. Remember him as you're reading through Esther and you don't even see the name of God. Jesus is the grand hero of scripture. We are reminded that one greater than Mordecai has come and saved you from sin and death. One greater than Esther has come. She did so at the risk of her life before the king. Jesus did so at the cost of his life so that we might find it. So in the story of the gospel, because perhaps some of you say, Pastor Mike, I've done steps one, two, and three, and I'm still miserable. I've done step one, I've looked back, and I see nothing but bad, nothing but bad. Regardless of what you say, I see nothing but bad. I have nothing to willingly acknowledge and my emotions are not that of happiness but of sorrow and despair. Well, I think most people, that's not their lives. But let's say it is for some. It genuinely is for some. This is where the gospel proves itself as the ultimate ground for your thanksgiving. Jesus died on the cross so that you could have your sins forgiven. Everything you've ever done wrong in your life, ultimately against your creator. And as a result of sin, one day physically you will die. And after that will be judgment. And it is only through Jesus' righteousness that you will be raised again to everlasting life. Without Jesus, you'll be raised again too, but to everlasting shame and death and torment. And Jesus is the only way out of that. And if we see that that's what Jesus has done, it doesn't matter what happens in my life. No matter how bad things go, even if it's an Esther type story. Even if it's the story of Cory ten Boom, the Dutch European Christian who survived the Nazi holocaust. If she can look to the cross of Christ in every season of life, we can find an ever-flowing river of joy that never dries up. And we can drink from that well of joy, that river of joy, in any day and in any season. And if we do that, we will spring forth in gratitude. I'm going to call you forward in just a moment as we close in You'll have an opportunity to respond to Jesus at the tables to my left and to my right. The bread and the cup symbolize him. And again, I've I mentioned the Greek word, and it's been famously used even in English, the Eucharist, Eucharisto. It means Thanksgiving. It, it's the secret to what this is about. Ultimately, yes, there's, I may have guilt and, and these things, and certainly I want to confess that. But at the end of the day, it's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's the removal of shame and guilt. It's not about how, recognizing how much of you are a failure you are. Ultimately, it's how much God has forgiven your failure. It is a point of contact for thanksgiving. And it should shape the rest of your week. And hopefully, that becomes a tree with many branches and offshoots where you begin by thankfulness to God through Christ. But then you become a thankful person. A person who, for you, Thanksgiving does not have to be forced upon you once a year by some kind of national holiday, but it becomes a way of life for each of us. And if we're in Christ, indeed, Thanksgiving should be every day. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much. Even through those seasons of silence... When we can't see your face, and we can't hear your voice, and it looks like evil is prevailing, even then, you are there. Even then, you are the king on the throne. As we saw in this story of Esther, the true king of the world was not Xerxes. The true king of the world is Jesus. And He is overruling and reigning over everything, both seen and unseen, visible and invisible, the human and the spiritual. And that if we're in Christ, if we're in Christ, we are promised by the ever faithful God who cannot deny Himself that all things will work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So Lord, I ask in this time of closing these final songs, this time of opportunity to respond to you with the first fruits of what you've given to us, as we respond at the Lord's table, thanking you for what you've done for us in Christ, as we have the opportunity to come forward for prayer as well, we just pray that you would create gratitude in us we pray that you would forgive the sin of unthankfulness. I pray you'd show us how unthankfulness is poisoning different areas of our lives. And how the real secret is not moving here or there or this person or that person or getting more, but it is in us becoming the people we were meant to be. Becoming people of gratitude. And so we just ask that you bless this time now for your glory and for our benefit. Amen.